Amen. Good morning, church. How are we feeling today? Excited for the week? What's coming Tuesday? How many of you just said Halloween, you pagans? Just kidding, we'll be trick-or-treating too. But Tuesday is Reformation Day, right? October 31st, 2017 is the what anniversary? 500th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther walked up to the church door in Wittenberg and he nailed his 95 theses onto that door and that was the act that sparked what we know as the Protestant Reformation Uh, By the way, my name is Travis Bond. I serve as senior pastor here. I'm glad to do so. Uh, Funny story, uh, several years ago, only other church that I've ever served as a lead pastor, Sarah and I moved down to South Carolina, which was an awesome church, loved our time there, but pretty conservative in style. So October rolls around, and I ask, well, what do we do? you know, to celebrate at the end of the month, what, what kind of, what's the culture of the church. Um, they, do, they do not have a Halloween party at that church, which I kind of expected because it was Baptist country. So the question, well, what do we do for the kids? A Reformation Day celebration. I think, all right, I love history. I'm all in. So what is that? Is it like a harvest party, you know, costumes? Candy, bobbing for apples. Turns out, Reformation Day party is um, a party where all the kids are invited to dress up like their favorite reformer. (laughs) Really? (laughs) To avoid kids celebrating like death and witches or whatever, they were all encouraged to impersonate a Reformation era hero instead. (laughs) Which, if you think about it, really turned into a bunch of little humans walking around dressed in a dark bedsheet with a pretend beard on. (laughs) Shockingly, we had trouble growing that party as it was, and we had to change course after a couple of years. But for those of you who think that that sounds like a fantastic idea uh, and you don't have your costume yet, uh, here are some guys who you might want to select from for Tuesday. Uh, By the way, this month, guests, we are doing a series. It's called Sola, um, Five Sermons on the Reformation. We're taking five key doctrines. We would call them must-have doctrines. And we're teaching that alongside the story or like brief intro biographies of five key reformers. So week one, you guys can help me out with this. We met Martin Luther in Germany, and we were introduced to the doctrine of sola. Do you remember? Awesome. Scripture alone. And then week two, Pastor Carl introduced us to a guy named Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland, and we studied the doctrine of sola Fide, faith alone. Thank you from the missions team. Well done. (laughs) And then um, week three, we looked at John Calvin. He was in Switzerland and France, and we looked at the doctrine of sola gratia, grace alone, which brought us then to last week when we jumped over into England, and we met a guy named Thomas Cranmer, and we studied the doctrine of solus Christus. Christ alone. And all of that then brings us this morning to our final doctrine and our final reformer. So we're heading to Scotland to meet a man named John Knox, who honestly, if you do want to dress up like one of these reformers, he would be the guy, because clearly he has the best beard of them all, 
And you get as a prop a two-handed sword, which is just awesome to carry around. Five solas, um, we would argue at MCC, five must-have doctrines for any Bible-believing church. Those first four, then, find their summation in this final one, sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. So we always try and anchor ourselves in the scripture first. Our text this morning, it's just a single verse. So open up, if you would, to the New Testament, which is the back third of your Bible, if you're unfamiliar with how it's structured. There's a book in the New Testament. It's Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the Corinthian church, and go to chapter 10, or if you're using one of the black Bibles, you can find this on page 958. And while you're turning there, just a quick sentence on context. First century, right? Um, The church of Corinth, Corinth in general, very, very pagan culture, all kinds of practices that would be antithetical to a God-fearing people. And so Paul's writing to them. They got all these questions about food that has been sacrificed to idols. What can we eat as Christians? What shouldn't we eat as Christians? So 1 Corinthians 10, if you drop your eyes down to verse 31, and hear now the very word of the Lord. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Just one verse. I'll read it again. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's start here. Early 1500s. Scotland is a boil ready to burst. Okay? The country is uh, a mess. Um, Roman Catholicism, which I need to say, thankfully, today is very different than it was then. But at the time, the the church, the, the amount of financial and sexual and spiritual corruption present in the church was profound. Um, Here's a couple of examples. David Beaton, the cardinal and archbishop of Scotland, he uh, illegitimately fathered no less than 14 children, all while demanding priestly celibacy. Many priests at the time in the country were under the impression that the New Testament was a recently published book by the guy in Germany named Luther. Into that context, okay, 1514 is born this man named John Knox. And by the time that he's a teenager, so now late 1520s or so, that European Reformation is beginning to bleed into both England and now up into Scotland. Uh, Knox, he was not the eldest son, which means that he wasn't going to be able to inherit the family business. And so for him, the clergy was going to be the easiest way to get educated and make a little bit of money. In other words, he was not motivated by any, any kind of gospel interest at all. Until a fantastic preacher by the name of George Wishart comes upon the scene. And he, when he preaches like um, huge 
crowds. He is proclaiming that we have a relationship with God that's not mediated by priests. It's not mediated by saints or by sacraments. But we are in relationship with God through Christ himself. Knox hears that gospel propounded over and over again. It eventually leads to him professing faith in Jesus, and uh, he even becomes a bodyguard for Wishart using that awesome two-handed sword that I mentioned. Wishart ends up getting arrested. He ends up getting burned alive for his faith in a place called St. Andrews, and that is the spark that, that awakens the country to the corruptions and the abuses that are present. And so this, um, this first generation of Scottish reformers, a whole bunch of them, including Knox, they take refuge in St. Andrew's Castle, where Knox is essentially manhandled into becoming their minister. And the year is now 1547, same year that King Henry VIII dies. And now, 21 French galleys sail into the bay and they begin to bombard this castle where all of these um, Protestants, these first-generation Protestants, are taking refuge. Um, They are outmanned. They are outgunned. The Protestants surrender. And so begins the most miserable part of John Knox's life. He is enslaved And he is chained to a rowing bench on a French galley for the next two years of his life in uh, deplorable, unsanitary conditions, disease-ridden. The question every day with every pull of the oar, how is God glorified in this? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Few of us here are ever going to face the kind of misery, that brand of misery that Knox experienced in the belly of those French ships. But we've all experienced hard days. Or just boring days. Or unsatisfying days. When we say to ourselves, there's got to be more to life than this. And church, I want you to understand, when when we say that, what we hear is our soul crying out. There has got to be more to life than me. That's what that means. That we were not made for sola mio gloria. We were made for sola deo gloria. Because our glory is far too small a thing to live for. Our glory is far too small a thing to live for. Many of us in better environments than Knox's begin to question after a while, why? Um, We'll take Marketplace. 
your workplace, for instance. Um, early on in careers, for, for many of us, um, purpose is not really the driving question um, at the front of our minds. Uh, Stanley says, everybody has to eat and live indoors, right? And so sometimes just making the paycheck, th- th- that's enough for a while. And, and the larger purpose, it just kind of hovers out there for a while. But then for many of us, eventually you get to a place in your career, in your daily labors, your 40, your 50, your 75 hours a week, and that question comes hard to us. Why? Why am I doing this? Does it really matter? Do you ever think about that? Whether it's what you're doing in the home, or whether it's what you're doing in the marketplace, or whether it's what you're doing in the church. You ever ask that question, why? The answer is here. Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you think about utensils in your kitchen, or tools in your garage, Every tool was fashioned for a purpose, right? We might not use them that way, (laughs) but every tool was fashioned for a purpose. Every tool is meant to be a means to an end. The problem is that we are born into this world not wanting to be a means to an end. We want to be the end. If you just think about, you know, probably one of the most well-known, most memorized verses in the Bible, half of you could probably recite it at the drop of a hat, written by Paul to the church in Rome. He says this, for all have sinned and fall short of, finish it with me, the glory of God. What did we just say there? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My friend, the reason that your kids sin, the reason that you sin, The reason that we find ourselves choosing rebellion is because there is something at the causal core of personhood, i.e. the heart, that makes us want to be so badly glory manufacturers rather than glory reflectors. But that can never satisfy because your glory is far too small a thing to live for. And John Knox, he had a growing understanding of that. Um, When you think about the life of Knox, there's really four key locations that are helpful uh, to put in your mind. I already told you about the battle at St. Andrew's Castle and then his subsequent enslavement on the French ships. So after two years of that, Knox became free. Um, We don't know how. Was he released? Did he escape? Um, Either way, rather than returning to Catholic Scotland or going to Catholic France, he instead hopped over to the continent. uh, Excuse me, he stayed uh, there in Scotland for a moment, and then he went to England. Um, Some big reforms are going on in England. Uh, We looked at them last week under a guy named Thomas Cranmer. So Knox winds up in a place called Newcastle, where he is something of an army chaplain, and he, uh, he's there for a couple of years. He meets a girl named Marjorie. Marjorie's dad, not a fan of John Knox, 
Marjorie's mom, really big fan of John Knox, and so he ends up marrying this girl, and down the line they have a couple of kids. He will eventually be um, widowed at a young age. But while there in Newcastle, Knox starts to make a name for himself. Um, He openly condemns the mass as idolatry. He's proclaiming that Christ is not something to be uh, physically ingested, but rather something, someone to be spiritually experienced. Knox, he rises in prominence, eventually gets to preach um, before King Henry's son, now King Edward. And he also predicts this coming wave of persecution should King Edward die and his sister, who we know is Bloody Mary, come to the throne. And of course, like we talked about last Sunday, that's exactly what happened. So after two years in Newcastle, now is when he hops over to the continent and he heads for a place called Geneva. Who do we know in Geneva? John Calvin. This is this is big deal. Knox studies there, and as Calvin is unrolling Reformed theology over all of Europe through his Institutes of the Christian Religion and um, through training up all of these pastors and sending them out, Knox gets to learn at the very foot of Calvin's pulpit in St. Pierre's in Geneva. And Knox loves it there. Because remember, in addition to grace and the Holy Spirit, the, the third great emphasis of John Calvin's teaching was the sovereign glory of God. The recognition, in other words, that our glory is far too small a thing to live for. But sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. Well, that's a purpose that can drive our lives. So Knox studies under Calvin. He loved it. He quote, um, called Geneva the most perfect school of Christ that ever was on earth since the days of the apostles. And ultimately, Knox would take all that he learned there in Geneva and he was going to carry it back with him to Scotland again. And have an impact that echoes through the centuries. Because purpose drives decisions. It was Knox's purpose to make the name of God famous. The glory of God that drove his decisions to do what he did. That word glory... We throw it around so much. I do worry sometimes we almost rob it of meaning. Um, In the New Testament, in verse 31, the the verse we're looking at, in the New Testament, the Greek word behind glory is doxa. Um, We sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. In other words, all of creation is to sing the majesty of this triune God. That's Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the what? 
glory of God. So the New Testament Greek word for glory is doxa. The Old Testament Hebrew word for glory is kabod. And that one's helpful as well because the Hebrew word carries with it this sense of weightiness. And that makes sense even in English, right? Because when we hear something really significant, we say, oh, that was heavy. Or sometimes we get annoyed and we say to the person beside us, you are taking this too lightly. In other words, the glory of God is of such weight that it should exert a gravitational pull on everything that we do. The glory of God is of such a weight that it should exert a gravitational pull on everything that we do. Purpose drives decisions. Purpose affects everything because everything matters. Really, Trev? Everything? Yeah. When held beneath the purposes of a crucified and risen and ascended Christ, everything matters. In fact, it was out of the Reformation that we get what's called the doctrine of vocation. Have you guys heard of this? Hopefully you live it without even knowing the term. It's really, really important. The doctrine of vocation, because remember, at the time, the, 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 the clergy, the church taught that the clergy are the ones who did the really important eternal things. And the rest of you, whatever it is you do, was just to support what we do. And then the Reformation comes along and it pushes all that rubbish aside. And it says, no, when held beneath the Lordship of Christ, everything matters. Why? Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Which means if you're a student, you study with all of your might unto the glory of God. If your day, if you're in a season of life where your day is largely cleaning up vomit and carrying diapers to the dumpster, you carry the diapers to the glory of God. Whether you're in the corner office or you're in the classroom or you're in the radiology department, wherever you are, Whatever you do, sola deo gloria. Everything matters. You know, um, Johann Sebastian Bach, almost every one of his compositions, you'll find at the bottom the initials S-D-G. Because for the Christian, whatever we're making, whatever we're building, whatever we're doing, sola deo gloria. God gives everything weight And that's the theology then that drove Knox from Geneva and now we loop back to Scotland. Um, We had St. Andrews to Newcastle and then we had Newcastle to Geneva and then from Geneva studying under Calvin we now go back to Scotland and the capital city of Edinburgh. Uh, He preached at a place called St. Giles and he instituted there very simple worship. So gone is the ceremony and all of the you know, the, the stuff, the accoutrements, um, the focus, the pinnacle of worship is the preaching of God's word because that's when we go quiet for a moment and God, through his word, whenever it's rightly preached, speaks to us. 
Um, and, and he's doing it now. He's preaching the Bible in the vernacular, English or Gaelic. The congregation now is invited to participate in things they never did before, like singing. Knox wanted a church and a school in every parish. In fact, it was because of that initiative that Scotland became an almost entirely literate country. First example of that in history. And he was fiery the whole time. Uh, Chris Williams, one of our elders, was over in Edinburgh last week. He said almost every plaque, and I guess there's a bunch of them, he said almost every plaque that you come across in the city always has the descriptor of Knox as firebrand because he was just that, that impassioned, fierce kind of preaching. Um, this is a picture of his house today uh, in Edinburgh. This is now what it would have looked like probably uh, in 1560, which is the year in Edinburgh that Knox publishes a very significant document. It becomes a forerunner to our Westminster Confession of Faith called the Scots Confession. This is important because this confession officially broke the the country from Roman Catholicism. It formed a new Church of Scotland, and uh, we eventually come to know that as Presbyterian which is in many ways, MCC, what we resemble today. A church, it's not about hierarchy. It's not about being elite-led. It's about being elder-led. So this is just a, a brief excerpt from that Scots Confession. This is the very first chapter. We confess and acknowledge one God alone, to whom alone we must cleave whom alone we must serve, whom alone we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust, by whom we confess and believe all things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, to have been created, ruled, and guided to the manifestation of his own glory. Church family, your own glory is far too small a thing to live for. So what what purpose is your life wrapped around? When you think about what's the vision you have for your family? What's What's the purpose you have for your marriage? Do you think about these things? Or do we just kind of bounce along doing whatever the next thing appears to be. Purpose determines decisions. Here's what I mean. Um, Here's a modern example. CVS Pharmacy has as a stated purpose helping people on their path to better health. So in 2014, Larry Merlo, CEO president of uh, CVS Pharmacy announces that they will become the first national pharmacy chain to stop selling cigarettes and related tobacco products. This was going to be, for a few years, a very expensive decision. You can imagine there might have been a few questions from a few people. Merlo says, quote, Sale, the sale of tobacco products is inconsistent with our purpose. 
That decision, it initially cost them millions, and by 18 months out, it cost them roughly $2 billion in direct and indirect related sales. Most companies say, hmm, let's leave purpose for the nonprofits. Because we got quarterlies and we got shareholders and the whole thing. Merlo said, quote, ending the sale of cigarettes and tobacco products at CVS Pharmacy is simply the right thing to do for the good of our customers and our company. The sale of tobacco products is inconsistent with our purpose, helping people on their path to better health. It's just a sermon illustration to make the point. Purpose determines decisions. So as we wrap up, can I ask you a personal question this morning? What is working against your purpose, Christian? Or if I can put a finer point on it than that, what is the biggest lie in your life right now? The one that maybe nobody else really seems to know about. Because I promise you, whatever that lie is, if you are a professing Christian aiming for the glory of God, that lie is working against your purpose. It's working against the glory of God. And if that rings your bell to any extent this morning, I invite you as point of application, repent. Get alone with God today. Repent. Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And then if I can also say warmly and with a lot of humility on my part, if I, if I can say, if, 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 you're, if you're new to this whole thing and you're, you know, you're, you're here, you're curious about Christianity, maybe you've been here for a while, you're investigating, but you really haven't made a decision for Christ. Are you willing to be a means to an end instead of making yourself the end? (laughs) We have a prayer team that meets up here every Sunday after services and they would love to pray with you and through anything that you want to pray about because your glory, our glory is far too small a thing to live for. Thank you for joining us for today's message. Medway Community Church would love to welcome you as our guest one day soon. Our church family meets every Sunday morning for worship and also offers a wide variety of small group and ministry opportunities. To learn more, please visit us on the web at medwaycommunitychurch.org. We look forward to seeing you soon. Washing all my shame.